Today, we will study about the most famous toilet story in the Bible. Yes, there is a toilet story in the Bible. Unlike your and my toilet story, this toilet story is not embarrassing, but actually encouraging. Today's story tells us one of the most moving and inspiring examples of faith, forgiveness, and reconciliation. I also think this story has an urgent message to us in our pandemic because there is a story, this is a story of a conflict resolution and the peacemaking. One of the devastating effects of this pandemic is that it has increased domestic violence all over the world. According to an article in Forbes last week, the UN Secretary General called for a global ceasefire on horrifying global surge in domestic violence. The European Parliament called on its members to increase support for domestic violence victims, saying that violence in home against women and children is a pandemic within a pandemic. The increase of emergency calls caused by domestic violence worldwide is just stunning. stunning. 30% more in France and Cyprus, 35% increase in Singapore, and 25% in Argentina. The mandatory shelter-in-place escalated stresses and stress levels among family members and exacerbates the existing tension in family to new height. Many are taking their frustration to other members of the household. I pray that if some of us are in need of a conflict resolution at home or at work, may Holy Spirit inspire our hearts and illuminate our minds toward the forgiveness and reconciliation through today's story. Now, let me read how this toilet story happened in David's life. As I read each successive part of the story, I'm going to highlight the four, four sets of ironies four sets of ironies or contrast which highlight faith, forgiveness, and reconciliation. Let me first read 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1 to 3. After Saul returned from pursuing Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the cracks of a wild goat. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself, and David as his men were far back in the cave. Today's story continues from the last week's episodes of God's amazing rescue of David. When David was completely surrounded by Saul's two armies, and was about to be captured, Saul received an urgent news of invasion of the Philistines and had to suspend his pursuit of David. Today, Saul returned to hunt David again with a new intel that David was in the desert of En Gedi. And let me show you the map where En Gedi was located. If you look at the map, do you see the map? Okay, if you look at the map, do you see the Gibeah of Saul in the upper middle? That's where the Saul's you know, headquarters. It's a little north of Jebus or uh, Jerusalem. 
And do you see the Adullam, the center? That's where the uh, uh, Davis uh, Cave of Adullam, or his uh, first headquarter, was located. Look at far right. There is a Dead Sea, and right by there, there is an En Gedi. And this is where today's story took place. Now, back to, uh, back to the text. Saul never forget David. His resolve became stronger today. This time, Saul prepared himself with an elite army of 3,000 young men, specially selected all over the Israel. With this force, he was at the tail of David and his 600 men. Saul had an overwhelming tactical advantage of a 5 to 1 over David and his men. And there is an irony here. Saul had chosen 3,000 out of all Israel to hunt down the one whom the Lord has chosen out of Israel. And Saul's forces arrived in front of a place called the cracks of a wild goat or wild ghost rocks. And let me show you the picture of natural caves in the En Gedi area. The fact that David and his 600 men were hiding here means Saul's operation was gaining momentum and domination. David decided not to battle against Saul, but buried deep in the cave where only wild ghosts should, would come in. It, it really must have seemed that Saul's moment of a triumph was near. So this, do you see all the little uh, holes there? That's the, uh, uh, that's the natural caves. Now, back to the text again. The narrative suddenly becomes remarkably detailed. Verse 3 said, he came to pens along the way, and there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. This, I must say, is a kind of detail normally omitted from story like this. Toilet visits are necessary, even for kings, but rarely essential to stories. Presumably, King Saul had dug into many caves or other places for similar purpose on his numerous expeditions but we are normally spared from such a dull details. The reason the royal bathroom break on this, case, on this occasion was interesting was because the cave that Saul happened to choose. Verse 3 said that David and his men were sitting in the deep, innermost part of the cave. Of all caves in the En Gedi, and there are so many, Saul chose to come in into this one alone and vulnerable. It must be a tense moment of a shock and awe. Imagine the scene. There is an army outside the cave, armed and dangerous, and David and his men were huddled deep in the darkness of a cave, hidden and no doubt very nervous. And between the two, a short distance into the cave, Saul came in with his pants down. Saul came in with his pants down. Here is a great irony number one. Privacy versus publicity. Privacy versus publicity. While Saul was having a most private moment, there were 1,200 eyes watching his every move. 1,200 ears hearing every sound he was making and 1,200 nostrils Sniffing the stinky smell, Saul 
thought that he was having a very private moment, but he was more public than ever before. And then he thought he was having a private moment because he could not see anyone or anything. In that sense, privacy is a kind of ignorance based on inability to see or sense others. Now, isn't it how we also perceive our own privacy and especially our safety in this pandemic? Because we can see, we think we are safe. And today, I want us, I want us to know something, something relevant about this privacy and especially this you know, deception, self-deception about you know, not able to see it. Let me show you show YouTube that illustrates the size of COVID-19 virus. So, Corinne, can you show us the uh, this one-minute uh, YouTube on COVID-19 virus? Watch. Size of a human hair is a 100 micron, whatever the unit is. I actually uh, picked up the hair in the carpet today and tried to show you, but I lost it. It's so small, it blew, it's gone. So I'm sorry, I can't illustrate, you know. So human hair is a 100 micron and blood cell is a 7 micron. Bacteria is a 0.5 micron. Coronavirus is a 0.1 micron. Coronavirus is a one thousandth of a hair. Invisible does not mean unreal. Minuscule does not mean mini danger. Coronavirus makes our air literally lethal with its airborne particle. Let us wash our hands and wear a mask. This tiny pathogen is killing so many in chain reactions. Just like King Saul had barely survived today, we are surviving every day by ducking from 0.1 micron stuff in the air. So, wear, wear the mask, please. Now, let us see the second irony in the story that points out the most important lesson today. Let me read a uh, verse 4 to 7. The man said, There is the day that the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of a soul's rope. Afterward, David was a conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his rope, and he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hands on him, for he is anointed of the Lord. With this word, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. In the darkness, deep inside the cave, there were whispers. And the man of David said to him, here, this is a day the Lord has made for you, and we will all rejoice. This is a day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as you please. Although Lord said no such a thing, the sentiments of David's man here were understandable. 
In the previous chapter, the Lord said to David that I'll give a Philistines into your hands, which was pretty close to I will give your enemy into your hand. From the point of view of David's men, there was not much difference between Saul and Philistines. And it is also true that Saul branded David as his enemy in many numerous occasions. The men were only drawing the obvious conclusion. If David was Saul's enemy, then Saul must be David's enemy. That's how the world thinks. If someone calls you his or her enemy, then that someone becomes your enemy. If someone dislikes you, you also dislike you back. So David's men expanded the Lord's promise to destroy the enemies David now into Saul. It was undeniable that the table been turned. Blissfully aware, Saul was at the mercy of David. The deadly conflict and their difficult life as fugitives could end once for all in this toilet with the one stroke of David. It must have been as clear to David's men in the back of the cave that this turn of fortunes was the Lord's doing. This kind of fortune cannot be coincidence. It must be God's providence for you, David, they probably say. And they saw their situation from their self-interested perspective, and they call it opportunity from God. But David differed from them. David was not opportunist. David was not an opportunist. He did not read a situation from his vintage point, but from God's viewpoint. David chose obedience over opportunity here. That's the irony number two in this story. Opportunity versus obedience. Twice David calls Saul God's anointed. Verse 6. The Lord forbid I should do such a thing to my master, Lord's anointed, or lay my hands on him. He is anointed of the Lord. Two important reflections on faith we need to make it here. First, David did not see Saul primarily in light of his own self-interest. David saw, David saw Saul in light of God's sovereign will. Before Saul was his enemy, David saw Saul as someone belonging to God, someone related to God. God's relationship with Saul precedes his relationship with Saul. How about us? When we see others, do we see them primarily in the matrix of our own pragmatic values? Is that person useful to me or not? Is that person good to me or not? Do I feel good or bad about that person? David saw Saul first as a God's anointed instead of his adversary. Do we see people through the eyes of God first or through our eyes first. Second reflection. Here we see not only David's respect for God and God's anointed king, but also David's trust in God for his life. David understood the kingdom, which was certainly be his one day, because that's what God promised. But David also knew that kingdom was not for him to take by his own power. The kingdom had been given to Saul by God first. 
And that's why he was called God's anointed. And it was up to God to take it from him in God's time, in God's way. This was not a politic as we know. It was, it was a power struggle, but different kind of power struggle uh, with which we have, you know, different kind of power struggle. From David's side, there was a determined refusal in this matter to wage war according to the flesh. Last week's daily breath, we learned from Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that we are fighting our battle not with the weapons of the world, but weapons of God. The kingdom could only properly come to David as a God's gift. And this was clearly very important to David. To David, throne of Israel belonged to God as all powers belong to God, and all power need to be exercised according to God's purpose and will. One time, in a cabinet meeting of President Abraham Lincoln, someone asked a question. How do we test a man's character? Another person answered, give him adversity, because adversity reveals what a man is really made of. President Lincoln was silent and slowly said, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power and see how he uses power. Today, David has a power in his adversity. He had opportune power to finish his adversary. He had a power to end his afflictions, but he did not use power for his interests because he trusted God and respected God's sovereign will. That's the character of a faith. That's why David released Saul, and he was releasing Saul into the hands of a sovereign God. The NIV translation of verse 7 is a little mild. Uh, NIV said, With this word, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. The Hebrew text literally said, David tore his men apart from Saul with his word. David... Ah. How come nobody told me that I was mute? All this time I was preaching... This is most important. How far did I preach the unmute? Bethel? One sentence. Oh, one sentence. Okay, thank you. <laughs> All right, back to... The NIV translation is mild. The literal Hebrew text is that David tore his men apart from Saul with his word. Now, I want to share some encouraging news with you, Forrest. Last week... I received an email that churches still could apply for government loan, PPP loans. So I consulted our village leaders first and asked our treasurer to find out. The information was correct. We could apply to extra fund for the church. So we decided to suggest that uh, Forest Leadership Council, that if we get the government loan, we'll use it for, not for my salary. I already received salary from church. Thanks to your, your faithful giving, we don't have any financial struggle, problem, shortage. But we will use that fund, government you know, a, a loan, for the Forest Family Relief Fund. And then our treasurer, Philip, came back with a question. There is a question to sign off. And the question asks, if this fund 
is necessary for our ongoing operation. Is it necessary for our ongoing operation? Obviously, it is not unnecessary, but helpful. Necessary for ongoing operation? Hmm. You know, necessary can mean a lot of things. Necessary also means nice. Nice. But Philip couldn't sign off. Neither our leaders. And then I have to play a devil's advocate here. So I asked him a question. Hey, are you guys saying that all these large churches, other churches, who don't have a financial struggle but got the loans, what about them? And they didn't budge. Our leaders didn't budge. And we came to the conclusion that if we apply for this loan, this loan we are being more opportun opportunistic than obedient to God's honor. So I'm glad to report to you, church, that our leaders have a good characters of a faith and spiritual discernment. Amen? Let me see the waving if you, those of you agree. Those of you, you know, say they should have applied the loan, put the, you know, you know I mean, show, show the uh, thumb down. I'm so glad that uh, our leaders were more God-honoring they are more for the glory of God than greed. It is a typical now, it is a typical of a biblical narrative to take us through the action quite briefly and then give much more space to what was said. The dramatic actions in the cave were just a setting for two amazing speeches that follow. When Saul had moved some distance from the cave, perhaps down the hillside toward his uh, troops, they came out to the mouth of the cave in a remarkable, daring, and risky move. And he spoke. And think about it. If his speech didn't work, David and his men could soon meet their end. Now let's listen to David's speech. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord, the king. When Saul looked behind, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to the soul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your rope, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of a wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you, have, uh, you are hunting me down like to take uh, my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. May the Lord, um, but my hands will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evil doors come evil dead, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. 
May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. Just as David rejected the words of his men to kill Saul in the cave, David was calling on Saul to do the same. Verse 9, David said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? From all that we know, David was being rather too generous to Saul. We have no evidence that anyone other than Saul himself was saying that David was seeking to harm Saul. Indeed, Saul was repeatedly being told the very opposite by Jonathan and others around him. Now, David was not only speaking, but also showing his forgiveness with a piece of the soul's rope. And here is the third irony, that is a power versus pardon. Power versus pardon, or might versus mercy. Power versus mercy. The symbolic significance of the torn piece of a soul's royal rope held high by David must have hit Saul hard because it's overpowered by the fresh new symbolic significance David gave it to it as a proof of a mercy that he has shown to Saul. In the book of Samuel, the rope symbolizes royal power. For instance, 1 Samuel chapter 15 tells us that the story about Saul's disobedience to God's command to destroy Amalekite, when a prophet Samuel confronted, Saul made a false repentance. And Saul asked you know, Samuel to go with him before all Israelites in order to save his face and do some political damage control. And then there, Samuel said to him that I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as a king of Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of Samuel's rope, and it tore. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. And also later, 1 Samuel chapter 18 tells again about the rope. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave to David, along with his tunic and his, even his sword, his bow, and his belt. That Jonathan, the crown prince, gave his robe to David along with his weapons was a more than kind gestures. He loved not only David, but also his country. He was conveying a non-verbal message to David that, David, you are better than I. You should be the king for our country instead of me. And your life is more important than mine. Take good care of yourself from now on. So the royal robe was a typical symbol of a power. But today, it became a symbol of a mercy in the hands of David. As David showed his mercy to Saul, David was also probing his innocence and his faithfulness toward, toward Saul. And then, Saul, uh, then David told Saul that he left it to the Lord to deal with the difference between himself and Saul. He now called on Saul to do the same. Verse 12, 
May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand did not go against you. And David, uh, speech could have ended here, but David pleaded one more time. According to old proverb, verse 13, as all going says, from evil doors come evil deed, but my hand shall not be against you. The obvious implication of the proverb is that Saul had acted wickedly to David. And, uh, but David said he would not do the same to the Saul. And David pleaded again with a, a second sort of argument. It's an argument for significant insignificance. And the verse 14, after whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? Or that dog? After flee? The question echoed the earlier proverb almost too closely. From wicked comes out wickedness. And after whom has the come out the king of Israel? And David was saying that king of Israel came out for nothing. Because he was a no more threat to, they, uh, to Saul than a dot, dead dog or a single flea on a dead dog. Finally, David concluded by calling on God to decide the matter. He had no doubt about which side God would come down. Verse 15, May the Lord be our judge, decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. And must he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand? I think this must have been the speech of a David in his life. How could a David convert the symbol of a power into symbol of a mercy? How could a David forgive such a wicked soul? Here, I want us to know the source of a human forgiveness. The source of a human forgiveness is a divine judgment. Divine judgment. David trusted God's judgment more than his own vengeance. Once again, here we see the power of our faith in God's judgment. Reason we can forgive everyone regardless of the person's response to us is because God will eventually and ultimately deal with everyone even those who never apologize to us for their wrongdoings. We all know Hebrews 11.6, that without faith it is impossible to please God, and that whoever comes to God must believe that God exists and reward those who honestly seek Him. Do you know God will reward not only those who seek Him in faith, but those who seek Him in their forgiveness of others? You know, God said, in Romans 12, the vengeance is mine. And Apostle Paul said, Do not take a revenge, my dear friend, but leave the room for God's rest, because God will repay. So here is the reason that you and I can forgive others. We are children of God, and God is our Heavenly Father. And our Heavenly Father is Almighty God. So if you and I, if we are faithful and good and somebody inflicted an injustice on us or me, you know such a person is in big trouble with my Father who is Almighty God. Actually, we need to pray for that person. 
You know, we forgive others because our God is the best one to administer judgment. Vengeance belongs to God, and God loves us. So don't worry about justice at the end. God will take care of our justice and or injustice that happened to us. So today, David was telling Saul that I forgive you, I leave you to God's judgment, and I don't have to avenge myself for my innocence, because God will do for me, and you better be ready. You better shape up. That's what David was saying. And I think this is a powerful, powerful way of forgiving others. Now, what happened after his speech? Before we read, we have to think about this. There is a distant, but yet distinct possibility that Saul could have commanded his troops to rush up the hillside and then slaughter David and his men. Now let's see Saul's response to David's mercy and courage. Verse 16. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I. You have treated me well, but I have treated you, treated you badly. You have just now told me about good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hand, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know you will surely be king, and the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendant or wipe out my name from my father's family. The words of David and all that they conveyed appear to have his soul very hard. It has been long time since Saul called David, David, my son. You know, in 1 Samuel, Saul called David, son of Jesse. The son of Jesse who threatened my throne. That's how he called him. But now he regained his conscience. David, my son. For a moment, Saul was overcome and he lifted up his voice and then wept loud, wept loud. David's merciful forgiveness awakened Saul's conscience from his long slip. You are more righteous than I. You have repaid me good, whereas I repaid you evil. Every part of David's speech was undeniably true. Saul's walking out of this cave alive was irrefutable proof that David was not his enemy. Then what was a David? For the first time, Saul, Saul put into the words what he must have known for a long time. Verse 20, I know that you will surely be king and the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. At long last, we have heard it from Saul and his troops would have heard it too. We notice that this acknowledgement of King Saul was not dragged out of him with a sword blade at his throat. It was forced out of him by David's faith and mercy. And here is irony four, final irony, confession versus celebration. 
confession versus celebration. Saul at last, or at least temporarily, confessed his wickedness to David and also celebrated David's goodness to him. Saul's confession, I think, is greater than any conquest ever ever made in his life. This confession came because of David's you know, respect to God and trust in God. David swept the heart of the soul with the goodness and scored a spiritual victory. Saul, for the first time, confesses a wrongdoing. And there remained one more thing for Saul to say, David, now swear to me, the Lord, that you will not kill off my descendant or wipe out my name from my father's family. In other words, he asked for mercy. And verse 22, David gave his oath to Saul, then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the strongholds. The forgiveness and confession did not make them BFF immediately, but at least made a temporary truce and peace. While Saul later returned again with the irrational envy and murderous hunt of David, this story just for now, moves our hearts today. Why? Why does the story of David stir our hearts today? This unconventional forgiveness and impossible reconciliation points out God's forgiveness and our hope of reconciliation with God and others in our life. Let me quote the last Bible passage today. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. To this you are called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his step. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insult at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threat. Instead, he entrusted himself to, to him who judges justly. Jesus forgave all of us as a David forgave Saul. You know, the example of a David's forgiveness point out the Jesus' forgiveness of us. And today, Peter said, Jesus left the example for us to follow. So we receive not only forgiveness of God, if you know what kind of forgiveness of God gave us through Jesus, you and I, we can become also forgivers to others. God's forgiveness enables us to forgive others. Before I pray, in, uh, pray, pray for all of us, I want us to remember this lesson very clearly once for all. David saw God in every situation, and he saw everyone with the eyes of God. David saw Saul first as God's anointed rather than his adversary. David never forget, my enemy is still God's enduring child. For that, I want you to unmute and say together, my enemy is still God's enduring child. On count of three, we will say this. One, two, three. My enemy is still God's enduring child. Don't forget. My enemy 
is a God's enduring child. David did not read God in terms of a situation, but he read situation in terms of God. Knowing God's character and trusting God's guidance is a critical in good time as in bad times. David was not an opportunist. David was obedient to God's principle and God's reign. He spared soul because he served God first. He submitted to God's sovereignty in his life rather than seeking his own sovereignty in his life. And we know God richly honored David and rewarded his faith and forgiveness and trust. Let us obey God more than any opportunity. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this inspiring story that challenges us today. Help us see you in every situation, in every relationship. Especially in our pandemic, we confess that we have so much to relieve. Help us relieve our stress and ourselves in your mercy and grace. Help us read every day both opportunities and obstacles in light of your love and your lordship. Help us recognize and trust that you are greater than any good opportunity. Lead us to leave our vengeance to you and follow the example of Christ our Redeemer and Peacemaker. In his precious name, we love and trust, we now pray. Amen. Let us praise God with a song that I will trust you with my life.